The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Justin Sonnenberg. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He studies gut microbiota in health and disease. He received the National Institutes of Health Director's New Innovator Award, and he and his wife, Erica, who is also at Stanford, she is a senior research scientist. They are both the authors of the book that we're going to be talking about today, which is titled The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. So thank you so much for being with me, Dr. Sonnenberg. Great to be with you. So I heard you speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting, and I was fascinated, of course, by the microbiome, because would you agree that the microbiome or the microbes that live in our gut seem to be like the new frontier in nutrition and medicine? Yeah, without a doubt. I think that there's been, you know, we've um, known for over 100 years that we have microbes living in our digestive tract. But I think it's just really over the past decade and then probably just over the past four or five years that there's just been this huge awakening, um, this tremendous increase in knowledge about this community. And it's really transforming how we think about, I think, humans in general as an organism. But it's also changing how we think about nutrition, changing how we think about medicine and clinical practice. So it really is this huge awakening. And, yeah, it's going to be an exciting area that's only going to become Um, I think, more important as time moves forward. And I would say that really the big thing that's happened is early on, two decades ago or so, it was recognized that this gut microbiota was central to our digestive health. These microbes helped us digest food. But really over this recent explosion of discoveries has pointed out that these microbes are connected to our body's metabolism. They can make us fat, for instance. They're connected to our immune system. So how well we fight off infections or how fast an autoimmune disease progresses. And then they can also affect our central nervous system. So the thinking is that they can probably affect moods and behavior. So I think the appropriate way to think about the gut microbiota is really a control center for all of our biology. Yeah, it's so fast. Fascinating. How did you get involved in this research? In graduate school, I was in a field called glycobiology, which is the study of carbohydrates and their importance in biological processes. And it became apparent to me over the course of my graduate career that these carbohydrates were incredibly important at mediating interactions between humans. All of our cells are covered in carbohydrates between human cells and microbes that we interact with. And this has been really well studied for many pathogens. So influenza, for instance, binds to sugars on our cells and cholera toxin binds to sugars that are present on our cells. But I really became fascinated with this emerging area of these carbohydrates mediating interactions between friendly microbes in our gut 
and our human cells. And that really led me into my postdoctoral work with a guy named Jeffrey Gordon at Washington University in St. Louis. And there I became totally immersed in studying the gut microbiota. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with Dr. Gordon's work because he was the one, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought he was the one who linked obesity with different populations of microorganisms in our guts. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that you know, he's done, he's really been one of the pioneers of this field. And I think it generated a lot of the early momentum and interest in this area. But really, one, one of the landmark studies, and there have been several out of his lab, one of them was a really profound study that actually established a causal role for the microbiota in obesity. One of the major questions or difficult areas to pursue in terms of scientific investigation is whether a problematic microbiota, what we call a dysbiotic microbiota, if it looks like it's composed of weird species, whether that is actually contributing to a disease or whether it's just a product or somehow in some other way linked to that disease. And it's a, it's a very difficult problem to approach. And so the Gordon Lab had observed this, that, that in obese mice, the microbiota was composed differently than of healthy lean mice. And so they wanted to address this issue of causation. And so they actually took that microbiota out of those mice that were fat, put it into lean mice that didn't have a microbiota. It's this experimental model known as germ-free mice. So they colonized these healthy lean animals. And just by transfer of that obese dysbiotic microbiota, they were able to induce obesity in those recipient animals. And so that really was a profound moment for the field to realize that this dysbiotic microbiota could actually cause obesity in this experimental model. So did those mice, did they increase their food intake or did they just metabolize their food differently? Yeah, so that they um, did check that and they didn't increase the food that they were eating significantly from the other control group that received a lean microbiota transfer. So the mice ate the same amount, but the mice with the obese microbiota gained weight. And so, you know, one of the, the big questions here is the mechanism. How is this actually happening? And we've gotten some clues to that, how these microbes could be changing the metabolism and calorie harvest in these uh, mice that were getting fat. And so, you know, not all of the dots are, are connected yet, but I think you're hitting on one thing, that there's a, a fundamental connection to host metabolism actually changing how the host deals with calories that are absorbed. But the other issue is that these microbes actually do help us harvest calories out of our food. And so when we read a nutrition label and we see a number of calories associated with the food, that's just a ballpark estimate based on some laboratory tests. And when that food actually transits through your digestive tract, some of the nutrients, of course, will be absorbed in the upper GI tract in the small intestine and not require a microbiota for digestion. And then some of the material will make it into the colon, and there the microbes can actually change the amount of calories that you're actually harvesting from that material. So it's not clear how big a role that's playing, but that's another possible mechanism as well. Mm, it's fascinating. We should probably just step back a moment and differentiate between microbiota and the microbiome, and we're also using the word microorganisms or even sometimes gut flora. 
So just for our listeners' sake, you know, we're going to use some of these terms interchangeably, but can we just have an overview of what those different things are? Yeah, absolutely. And that will be very useful because that will also define this community a little bit better, the microbes that we're talking about. So many people, certainly in the press and even in scientific fields, especially if they're not intimately connected with studying gut microorganisms, will refer to the community of microbes as the microbiome. But many people, scientists especially, will refer to this community as the microbiota. And so I refer to the actual community of microorganisms in our gut as the gut microbiota. And I use, and many in the field use, microbiome to refer to their collective genome. So there are really two different ways of thinking about this community. One is thinking about all the different cells that are present there, and there are many. There's 100 trillion, over 100 trillion bacterial cells in our distal gut, and this is more than the number of human cells in our body. And so that actually makes each one of us, by cell number, more microbial than we are human. We're actually nine parts microbial and one part human by cell number. But if you go to the genes that these microbes harbor, their collective genome, which I call the microbiome, they actually have 99% of our genetic material. So they encode millions of genes in their collective genome and really make up the bulk of the genetic material that's associated with our body. And then the other terms that you mentioned, you know, gut microflora is becoming a bit outdated as a term because flora was based on really not a, a great understanding of the microbial life that was present. And so some people still refer to the community as microflora, and that's totally acceptable, but becoming less used over time. And then I think you had one other term. I think I used just simply microorganisms. Right. And so microbe or microorganism, that refers to these microbes in our gut as well. And most of them are bacteria, although there are other types of microbes there as well. There are some eukaryotes and archaea. So but bacteria make up the bulk of these microorganisms. Okay. That gives us a good ground on which to continue this conversation. So let's go back now into the uterus. And there is a baby growing there. And at what point does that infant's gut develop its microorganism or its microbiota population? Where are the times in the life cycle that the microbiota is influenced, developed, and changed? Yeah, very good question. So, you know, the whole area of whether the womb is sterile or whether there's a microbiota that exists there is under debate and being researched right now. It was long thought that the womb was a completely sterile environment and the baby was completely sterile while living in the womb. And I think this is still the way that most of us are thinking about it and until there's really a preponderance of data to tell us otherwise. There's some evidence that the placenta may be colonized with microbes but not really clear if those microbes are associating with it and getting into the digestive tract of the baby. So I think the best evidence right now is that the baby's digestive tract becomes colonized at the moment that the baby enters the world. And so really the first
first factor that influences this is the mode of birth, whether the baby is born vaginally or by C-section, because you have this empty ecosystem in the digestive tract, and the first microbes that see it, there's a, you know, land rush to colonize this environment, this virgin habitat, and to be able to create a, a microbial ecosystem. And so there have been nice studies showing that if a baby is born vaginally, the very first days, the microbiota actually looks like the mother's vaginal and fecal microbiota, whereas if a baby is born by C-section, the gut microbiota looks very different. It looks like the skin microbiota. So because the microbiota is so fundamentally involved in development of the immune system and development of the digestive tract, it's thought that this um, mode of birth could be a very profound moment to really care and pay attention to how the baby's gastrointestinal tract is being colonized, and there are actually trials underway right now to inoculate C-section babies with vaginal swabs from the mother, both orally and all over the baby's skin, to try to get the right microbiota associated with that baby. Now, after the baby is born, and assuming it was a vaginal delivery, the baby is placed on the mother's breast, and then the next opportunity to colonize that GI tract then comes from the breast milk. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And there's evidence now that there are actually microbes that are present in breast milk that actually can potentially colonize the baby's digestive tract. And that's very new findings that I think have really incredible implications. Perhaps even better established is the role of specific chemicals in breast milk to foster a healthy microbiota. We all know that breast milk has amazing properties for promoting health in a baby, and the two most abundant classes of, of molecules in breast milk, we've all heard of lactose, which is a sugar that feeds the baby, and then, of course, the fat that's so abundant in breast milk. But the third most abundant class of molecules are, are known as human milk oligosaccharides. They're complex carbohydrates that are found in breast milk, and it was really not well appreciated why a mother would be putting so much energy into putting these carbohydrates in breast milk when the baby actually can't digest them. And just over the past five or so years, it's been established that these carbohydrates are being placed into breast milk for the express purpose of feeding the infant's developing microbiota and helping recruit the right members of the microbiota to the baby gut. So it's like the, the mother is lacing her breast milk with a type of dietary fiber that promotes a healthy microbiota. Gosh, that is so fascinating. We have to take one break. Remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Justin Sonnenberg, an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University School of Medicine and the author of the newly released book titled The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. All right, now one of the things that you said during your talk at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting was that the diet is one of the major levers that we have to affect the microbiota. And of course, our diet has changed. And you quoted an early researcher, Dr. Dennis Burkett, who said, America is a constipated nation, and that if basically you pass small stools, you have to build large hospitals. What was he talking about? 
Yes, he said all these things and had this great insight in the 70s, and I think the field is kind of rediscovering what Dr. Burkett found now with molecular data and and data about the microbiota to back it up. What he was talking about was, you know, he was an English surgeon that spent a lot of time in Africa, and he actually is famous for discovering a particular type of cancer known as Burkitt's lymphoma, but he also spent the second half of his career obsessed with the importance of dietary fiber. He noted that these African populations that he was studying had none of the diseases that he was used to treating in England, and he credited that to the incredible amounts of dietary fiber that these people would eat, and they would pass several stools every day, and each stool would be much, much larger than any of his patients in England, and he was convinced that it was this diet that was low in fiber that was at the root of Western disease, all the problems that he was treating in, in the patients in England. And recently, I think that there's just a lot of data that's falling into place to support exactly his view. We see that as in America, we struggle to eat 15 grams of dietary fiber per day. And if we look to uh, hunter-gatherer populations, um, populations that don't have these Western diseases, we see that they eat over 100 grams of dietary fiber a day. So approaching tenfold higher dietary fiber levels. And so there actually is a, a big question about, well, what does the, the microbiota look like of these people that don't have Western diseases? And so these traditional populations of people that live without all of our modern conveniences, all the medicines and, and foods that we eat, it turns out that there have been about eight of these populations surveyed around the world, and all of them have a much more diverse microbiota. They have many more bacterial species that are present there. They have some groups of bacteria that we just don't see in America. So it really appears that in the United States, we have a deteriorated microbiota, and I think a lot of that can be credited to our really poor diet that isn't feeding our microbes. We actually have a starving microbiota, and then potentially also due to things like C-sections, antibiotic treatment, and some of our other medical and, and lifestyle conveniences. What I love about your book is you not only present the theories and the science that support some of these arguments, but you also provide something that more Americans need, and that is you provide recipes and a meal plan. And as simple as that might sound, what that does is it's really an application of the science. And I really appreciate that. And I think that, at least in the dietetics profession, you know, we really moved away from teaching people how to cook. We didn't think it was scientific enough, but we have to be able to apply the science. And that brings me to my next question, which is, I personally think that it's better to get nutrients from foods rather than supplements. But I know that there are many fiber supplements on the market. They usually are either psyllium husks or they are things like wheat bran that people add to different foods. And I'm wondering, do we really know enough about fiber to say, that it's this fiber or is it the synergies of different fibers in whole foods that are really making the difference in the gut? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I think you're exactly right. Our knowledge with regard to single fibers is incredibly limited right now. And we really, in the book, advocate just consuming a lot more plant-based whole foods as a way of getting diverse fiber to foster a healthy microbiota, diverse microbiota, things like legumes, whole grains, vegetables, fruits, nuts, because 
and it, there's a really good example actually that will illustrate how we can't be sure if we're taking a fiber supplement whether that's actually going to do the job for us. There was a, a wonderful study looking at the microbiota of Japanese versus Americans. And one of the differences that they found was that in the Japanese microbiota, there was an enzyme embedded in the microbiota, in the microbiome of those individuals that was responsible for degrading a dietary fiber found in seaweed. And so the enzyme is known as a porphyrinase and the seaweed fiber is known as porphyrin. But that enzyme is not encoded by most Americans' microbiota because we don't usually eat seaweed. And so if we were to take seaweed or the purified fiber, porphyrin, from seaweed, we would reap almost no benefit from that in terms of fostering a healthy microbiota and all the beneficial metabolites that the microbiota generates when it ferments these fibers because it would pass through basically as an inert substance. So single fibers can be tricky because we don't know how to match them with everybody's personalized, individualized microbiota. So I really think just getting a, a diverse variety of plant foods is the safe way to go. That is so interesting to me because I've seen research looking at individuals who eat seaweed and there's been a lot of claims that seaweed has factors in it that can help reduce breast cancer, for example. And yet what you just said tells me that perhaps only if you can metabolize, digest and metabolize these different compounds in the seaweed is it really providing the health benefit. So maybe we're attributing benefits to foods that really should be attributed to the combination of the microbes, our genetic makeup with regard to those microbes, and then the food on top of that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think your point, you know, you hit on another important point there, which is why I really like to get my fiber from whole plants rather than purified sources. There are a lot of other helpful compounds that are found in plants that don't have anything to do with the microbiota or at least less to do with the microbiota than dietary fiber, but still play a really vital part in our health. And so I think if we were to, as a nation, just gradually start moving towards eating more and more plants, more and more dietary fiber through plants, we would gradually foster a healthier microbiota. And you mentioned how the diet is such an incredible lever on the microbiota. We know that diversity of the microbiota tracks with long-term dietary trends. If you eat a lot of plants, you'll gain a more diverse microbiota. And we also know that even in Western populations, the people with the more diverse microbiota have better health markers of inflammation and metabolism. So there's really, I think, a lot of reasons to do this in terms of combating and preventing Western diseases. Being a dietitian, it kind of drives me crazy that there are so many diet books out there and so many diets, and there are diets that are high fiber, high plant, there are diets that are low carbohydrate, high meat. And it was very interesting because you mentioned how meat can actually be detrimental to the microbes in our guts. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because I think that people, especially at this point in time, are very confused about whether we go towards a low-carb, high-meat, high-fat, high-cheese versus a high-carbohydrate diet. It's confusing. Yeah, absolutely. So there beautiful work from the Cleveland Clinic series of studies showed very nicely that people that were at risk for major cardiovascular events had a 
certain compound, a certain chemical circulating in their bloodstream that is called trimethylamine N-oxide. I'll just abbreviate it TMAO. And they went on to show that this chemical is actually produced by the microbiota, that these individuals actually had a microbiota that was producing this compound or a precursor to this compound that led to these problems. But the microbiota couldn't make the compound if it wasn't fed the right material from the people's diet, and that material is from red meat. So it turns out that carnitine from red meat is actually metabolized by the microbiota. The trimethylamine that's liberated goes into the bloodstream, gets converted to TMAO, and then causes these problems. And one of the really phenomenal parts of one of these studies is they showed that individuals that are not consuming a lot of meat, vegetarians and, and vegans, actually their microbiota is less able to produce TMA. So it's only in eating meat frequently that you actually shape your microbiota to produce this harmful chemical. And they actually, even in one of these studies, perhaps one of the most amazing parts of these studies, they actually got, a, I think, a 10-year vegan to eat a steak in the name of science. And they showed that 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 person did not show the spike in this chemical as a normal omnivore does because their microbiota was just less able to metabolize the carnitine in a harmful way. So the, you know, there's several messages here. One is, in general, if you're consuming a lot of red meat, you probably have a microbiota that produces a lot of this compound that's detrimental to your health. But the other part of it is is that it may be okay to have a steak once in a while if you enjoy that as long as you're not eating it every day. Yeah. You know, I have so many more questions that I would love to ask you, and I would just love to have you come back again. You've been a great guest. But I want to leave you with an opportunity in the last couple of minutes to pull out from this excellent book anything that I may have neglected to ask you. Sure. I think that for people that are listening and and have heard about the microbiota or, or maybe this is their first time and this sounds like an interesting new facet of their biology and an interesting new area of science, I really think it's much more than that. I think I want to leave people with this impression that the microbiota is central to our health and its deterioration may be at the heart of many of our really common modern plagues. And so I really think that getting our microbiota back on track as a population is incredibly important for making sure that we don't have all of these problems that if we look at their trend lines are just going through the roof. Things like heart disease, obesity, different types of cancer. I mean, there, you know, all of these diseases, the autoimmune diseases, these all have inflammation is a common basis, and I think the microbiota is fundamentally tied to that. And this deterioration of our microbiota, it doesn't have to be that way. It's just that we haven't known about the importance of the microbiota as we've been making our choices about diet, about antibiotics, about how sterile we keep our life. And so I think that we can turn this around with this new recognition of the importance of the microbiota, the things that harm it, and the things that help it, and really our book is an attempt to try to convey that message to everyone. Well, I think you do a wonderful job, and as I mentioned to you at the conference, what I would love to see more of are researchers like yourself partnering with the agricultural community and the medical community so that we can all talk about 
the commonalities and looking at the microbes in the soil, in the gut, and then public health from that angle. So I would love to have you back. We have to end. I need to let our listeners know that we have been talking with Dr. Justin Sonnenberg. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He and his wife, Erica, also a Stanford senior research scientist, are the authors of the book that we've been talking about titled The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Sonnenberg, thank you again for being such an enlightening guest and for doing this work. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for having me. 